So how's your year going? Good? You're having a grand time? Everybody feeling refreshed and just invigorated this time of year right now? Everybody's just kind of up to speed and just feeling great about things? How many of you are going to have a, a tear in your eye this New Year's Eve when 2020 makes its final goodbye? <laughs> Tears of joy? Okay. So many great memories. It's going to be so hard for 2021 to top it, right? Just going to, or we hope it can't top it. Maybe that's the better way of saying it. And so 2020 has been a pretty frustrating year, right? I, I, don't, I don't think anybody doubts that. In fact, it's probably an understatement. And really, frustrating, quote-unquote, is probably only a sufficient word for those who have, who have only been inconvenienced by this last year. And, I mean, there's, there's obviously a ton of stuff to scoff at and throw our hands up about and make fun of. And I'm usually at near the front of the line of people who want to make fun of things. But man, there's, there's also some people in our church family and broader world that 2020 is, isn't merely a frustrating year. It's been an agonizing year. It's been a pretty painful Year. There's a ton of frustrating stuff, but at the same time, we've also seen way more than our normal share of the truly heart-wrenching stuff. And so we've seen how the pandemic impacts people living in poverty on a greater level than those who aren't. It's almost like safety nets matter. We've seen politicians grab at power with no clear indicator that they ever intend to give it up. It's a scary thing. We've maybe watched somebody you love dearly be taken away by a disease, and even though you would have normally rushed to their bedside, protocols prevented you from being there. It's been a tragic year for some. It's been a pretty bad year. But hey, it's Christmas time now, right? Everybody ready to flip that switch? Turn holly and jolly and joyous, right? I mean, you're going to need to, to bottle up that, that frustration and just kind of press it down below the surface because we need this, right? We, we need to, to have the, 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 the escape that Christmas time offers. We, we need to have that release. So don't you rob me of that. Don't you rob other people of that. You can't be a Scrooge this year. You're not allowed. Does that feel forced to you? It feels a little forced to me. Put on your ugly Christmas sweater. Switch the TV over to the Yule log. Act like you're happy to be here. Or, or maybe we're trying too hard. Maybe. Depending on, depending on how much tragedy and heartache you've experienced this year, that may even be beyond a forced effort. That may actually enter the realm of offensive. Is it appropriate at all to strike up the harp and join the chorus when there are people in our world who are seriously hurting right now? Is that a good thing to do? So what do you do with Christmas? Do you just pretend like all the problems aren't there? Do you shut it down because we can't have that this time? Or is there a third way that might even be God's design? 
What do you do with Christmas? Is there any sense at all in trying to celebrate in the, in the ways that we're used to, especially seeing how a lot of those ways have actually been ripped from us this year? How many of y'all had plans this year that got shut down completely because you can't travel anywhere or because you can't have folks in your house or because you can't do this or because you can't do that? Like a lot of the stuff that we've, that we've leaned on tradition-wise or maybe hoped for this year has been completely pulled out from under us. Christmas 2020, it will not deliver on all the things that we hoped it would be this time last year. Not even close. It's an understatement to say that this is the Christmas that no one expected. Complete understatement. And we talked about this for a couple of weeks now, but, but I, I, I honestly wonder, though, why didn't we expect awkward Christmas? And it's not because I, I just like the pain, but like the more I go back to the stories that make up the Christmas narrative, the more I read about a baby lying in a manger and Mary being visited by an angel and, and, and Zechariah uh, and getting shut down from finally fulfilling his, his, his role in the temple. The more I read those stories, the more convinced I am that God's people have actually been here before. They seem to, to live in a constant state of chaos, in a constant state of turmoil, in a constant state of, of massive, unanswered questions and angst. In fact, it's, it's kind of it's their life all the time. They're always wrestling with a swirl of confusion and larger-than-life questions. They're always having to, to submit their expectations to, to whatever God has in store for them. But, but even though they, they seem to live in the chaos more than they seem to live in the calm, uh, they, God always seems to prove His faithfulness by getting them exactly where they need to be. No matter which story you want to point to in the Christmas narrative, that's always the conclusion. They're confused. God guides them. Everything's okay. In fact, he often uses the very chaos to shape his people into exactly what he wants them to be, something that's pleasing to him, something that expands his glory. And so the question that we've been trying to persistently ask the last few weeks, is, is this, or at least this Christmas season, is this. What if our expectations around Christmas this year aren't going to be unmet because this specific year can't deliver on our expectations? What if our expectations are actually unmet because we've expected the wrong things? What if our expectations are unmet because we built up expectations that actually never should have been there? What if we placed our hopes and our dreams upon things that not only are capable of being taken away, but maybe even sometimes need to be taken away so we value other things more, better things more? I'm going to really miss a bunch of the special Christmassy things that, that don't happen this year, but at the same time, no matter which story you point to, I don't ever get the impression from the characters who first celebrated Jesus' birth that missing those kinds of things would have slowed them down. Even as they're facing massive questions about their future and scary promises about their present circumstances, exceeding great joy always erupts out of them. It can't be contained. And so we've been focusing our attention during this short little Advent season on the expectations surrounding the, those very first Christmas characters, those very first people who got to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And, and we're doing that because I really think that their circumstances and their response to their circumstances can actually help us navigate our own chaotic Christmas. 
So you ready to look at it? Luke 2, verse 22. Jesus has already been born, and we see this. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Let's call time out there. Okay, so we play this game out every year, right? We know the story. Mary, Mary and Joseph, they, they travel to, to Bethlehem because of the census and Mary goes into the labor while they are there. And I know we kind of always kind of picture that, that they're arriving just as she's going into labor. In all likelihood, they've been there for a little bit. They're in, the, the Bible tells us that she goes into the labor. It's time for the child to be born while they are there. All right, so they're probably already there. So Mary and Joseph, they travel to Bethlehem. There's a census going on. They got to be there. They got to go to their ancestral home. And so the, the time finally comes. It's time for Jesus to make his appearance. And so Mary goes into labor while they are there. Thanks a lot, Augustus. All right? there, there isn't any room in the guest house, we're told. And so because like everybody else is also traveling right now, like everybody's moving around. There's a lot of a lot of people staying over the night. And so what do they do? We're told that they post up where the animals sleep. We don't get any real details about you know what that looked like. Could have could have been a stable. Could have been a shallow cave. Might have been somebody's living room where the pigs slept. It's, don't don't be all judgy about first century Judean animal practices. But like Luke doesn't tell us the details. Here's what we can assume though. It's small, it's smelly, and it's precisely where the God of the universe intentionally chose to make his public appearance. It's the spot where he chose to make a grand statement. There's no, there's no accident here. Joseph didn't merely forget to make the reservation. This is divine design. And it communicates something massive, something incredibly important about how and why he came. Mary wraps Jesus in swaddling cloths and lays him in a manger, an elevated feeding trough. Off outside of town, some angels make a scene on a hillside for some shepherds, right? The sky explodes. Silent night doesn't stay silent. The sky explodes and, and the shepherds do what you got to do in that moment. They, they run into town to see the great thing with which the Lord had made known to them. This is where the story starts getting a little squirrely for people who don't really know their Bibles well. There's no wise men there that night. They don't, they don't show up. Certainly no three kings from the Orient traversing afar. The young family's in Bethlehem. And they're actually going to be in Bethlehem for a little while. Why? Well, because Mary's not allowed to travel yet. They got to be there. Even if she longed to go home the next morning, they're not allowed to go. Stuff was to get done. They're, first of all, they're in Bethlehem for a reason. They're there for the census. It's just while they were there that Jesus came. And with the baby, the to-do list got a lot longer. After eight days, Jesus was to be circumcised. That likely would have happened in nearby Jerusalem. So they had to make a trip into Jerusalem after eight days. The law also declared that Mary was ceremonially unclean for another 33 days after that initial eight. And so on the 41st day, now being clean again, 
They were supposed to head to the temple. They were to present Jesus in the temple and offer a sacrifice there to redeem him back. Leviticus 12 spells out that sacrifice. So a lamb as a, as a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering. And if the family was poor and couldn't afford it, couldn't swing it, you could substitute another bird for the lamb. All right? That's how the system worked. And so it's while they are hanging out in the temple complex that, that this story takes place. The time for their purification according to the law of Moses. They're there to make the Leviticus 12 sacrifice. I think Mary and Joseph had some expectations walking into the place. I think they, I think they had some ideas about maybe how it should go down. Brand new parents. Far away from home. Home was off in Podunk, Nazareth, so they've been staying with some relatives for a while. Last month plus. Newborn baby. They're trying their best to, to, to be obedient to, to God's commands, and so they make the trip into the big city, right? Can you imagine the buzz? If you're from the small town, how do you feel about the big city? You, you don't like that place. Could you imagine having to take your newborn into Boston for a ceremonial thing? terrible idea right now everything's buzzing probably don't know their way around very well they head up to the temple complex which would have been the center of all the buzz the place is filled with people the place is filled with animals you best believe there were some money changers in there everything is booming and then what happens next as soon as they walk in, something happens. Look at verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was what? Simeon. Name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And I'm going to call a time out there. Um, hey, mom, how you feeling about this circumstance? You, you, you walk into the temple. You're probably pretty nervous. You, you're not sure exactly what the steps are. You know you got to be there. You're trying to be obedient. You know there's a, a, a system of rules to, to follow. And so you make your way, kind of sheepishly probably, into this massive temple complex, and everybody's moving around, and everybody's doing their own thing, and everybody's trying to pull you in their own way. And then as soon as you walk in the door, we're told, a stranger comes up to you and wants to hold your baby. How you feeling about that? You going to hand over your newborn? So here's a question I, I tried to chew on a little bit this week. What kind of life circumstances would you have had to have walked through by this point in order for you to think that that's a good idea? Right? That, that's, that's a real world question. If you're in Mary's shoes, if you're in Joseph's shoes, what causes you to say yes in that moment? 
Could it be perhaps all of the God-glorifying things, one after the other, that you've stored up in your heart for the last 11 months? God says he's going to do this, and you wondered about it. And then God said he would do this, and it happened, and you, you stored that up in your heart. Could it be one miraculous event after the next where you watch God do amazing thing after amazing thing after amazing thing? We're told over and over again in Matthew and Luke's accounts that they stored these things up in their hearts, that they wondered over them. I don't know for sure, but I'm, I'm guessing that's what led them to say yes in this moment. That's what led them to trust what God was doing in this moment. Watch him work again. Luke tells us that the man's name is Simeon, that he's righteous and devout. We're also told that he's, quote, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation is a word that we don't use much in our culture. It's, a, it's another word for comfort, right? We normally uh, kind of hear it within the realm of a consolation prize. That's typically the way that we would use that word. And so it's a prize that's intended to bring comfort to the one who didn't win. All right? That's the whole point of a consolation prize. It's to, it's to lift your spirits and comfort you because you're the loser. All right? That's what a consolation prize is. And so uh, Simeon longs, uh, we, 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 normally, like, we normally hear that word in the negative sense, but like a lot of words have a positive sense too. And well, the positive sense is, is really good. And we're told that Simeon longs for the day when, when Israel will receive its consolation, its great comfort. He's waiting eagerly for the day when, when Israel will finally be comforted by God. It's a comfort that was promised long, long ago. And, and it's a comfort that will be provided in a very specific way. Over and over again in the Old Testament, the Messiah would be the one to bring that final comfort to God's people. Tons of places could, you know, we could point to, to to show that off, but I mean, if you only got time for one, I think you got to point to Isaiah 61. There may be better places, but it's the one that lights me up. Isaiah says this in, in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And in verse 2, Isaiah says, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. That's a big promise. Isaiah loads up both barrels. He says, this is what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to do this. He's going to do this. He's going to do this. And one of the things he's going to do, he's going to bring comfort to all who mourn. The promise that God would bring comfort to his people, that he would comfort them with the Messiah that promise comes early and often in the Bible. It's a promise that the faithful in Israel would have known dearly and cherished. They would have clung to that on the dark day. Waiting eagerly for God to fulfill his promise to them. Unless you're tempted to think that God only works in the lives of the major characters of the Bible, pay attention to the fact that, that he has made a gigantic promise to Simeon. What does he say? He says you won't die until you get to see it. 
Simeon's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. This is their only little snapshot of him. So God's not only working in the major characters, he's working in all the ones that we barely know their name. And so God makes this promise to him that he will not die before he gets to lay his eyes on the Lord's anointed. He will get to see the coming of the Christ. The, the consolation with a capital C that he so desperately yearned for, it, it'll make its landfall before God finally takes him home. He walked in faithfulness for years, anticipating the announcement. And in verse 27, Luke tells us that the Spirit led him to the temple that day. God's not just moving in the lives of the major characters. The Spirit tells Simeon to get up and head to the temple. It's time to collect on the promise I made to you. And just like we saw a couple weeks ago from John, as soon as Jesus shows up, those that belong to him know what's playing out. They know the circumstances, and so they respond with praise. And so whether mom and dad are, are being led by the Spirit here to say yes, or, or Simeon's smile was just that kind of winsome, whatever it is, they, they said yes. And, and he scoops the baby up into his arms. I, I, it probably doesn't play out this way, but in my head, I picture Lion King. <laughs> right? Reveals a little bit of my nerddom. Right? Simeon worships by celebrating God's goodness. He praises him. He blesses him. We saw that word last week. So how does he praise him? Well, it starts in verse 29. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Okay, so we kicked off our Advent series a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, by looking at a song of praise from Mary that we call the Magnificat. It's a Latin word for magnify. She, she lifts him up and shows him off in order to expand his fame, in order to expand his glory. And so Last week, uh, we looked at a song of praise from Zechariah that we call the Benedictus. It's a different Latin word that means the blessing, right? And so uh, when his tongue is finally loosed, after he's been pent up, stored up, and ready and waiting to, for, the, for the go button for nine plus months, when he's finally able to speak again, the very first words out of his mouth are an, an explosion of praise. He blesses God for what God is doing and for who God is. This this week, we get a third song of praise, and this one historically has been called the Nunc Dimittis. The Nunc Dimittis. Get two Latin words this week. You're welcome. Don't, don't ever say I don't deliver. The Nunc Dimittis. Nunc is, is a Latin word for now. Dimittis is, means depart or released. Think of it in terms of, of a command from a master. Uh, don't, don't hear this as an autonomous, I'm ducking out of here, see ya. This is, this is uh, more like, you are free to go now. You're dismissed. Just like the, the previous two weeks, it gets its name from the Latin translation of the Bible. We call it the Vulgate. Simeon scoops the baby up. He takes one look at him. He goes, ah, Lord, you're letting me go home. Ah, Lord, you have... You have at last fulfilled your promise to me. Thank you for letting me go. 
You have now given me my release. If you were to stop and give it some thought, some serious, dedicated thought, what's the one thing that you could say that about? What's the one thing that you look forward to so much, you beg God to fulfill in your life constantly, that if God were to actually fulfill that thing in your life, you'd be ready to go home? be ready to depart. Simeon has begged God to see the one who would finally bring comfort to Israel, and now he's here. He's here. He came came wrapped in swaddling cloths. He he doesn't seem that big of a deal yet. He, He looks small and demure and insignificant, but he's here. So Simeon's ready to go. But Nunc Demetrius is in all, he says. Look at verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Can we, can we be honest here? He's raising the bar a little bit. Right? Like, like it's good and right to celebrate comfort, right? But like, like we've, we've elevated some things since, since we started talking. We, we've taken a step, right? Holding the Christ child, Simeon understands that this kid has come for way more than just being a band-aid. He's not here to say a soft word and be a, a, a comfortable shoulder to cry on. Oh no, true comfort, eternal comfort. It comes on the heels of one of the, the one who brings salvation. That's how you get comfort. The comfort that Israel truly needs. It is not won by tending to symptoms of the disease. It is won by killing off the disease. The sin that plagues God's people. The sin that plagues humanity. Listen, the sin that plagues me and you. It is a cancer that must be dealt with. God put on flesh. Human flesh. And dwelt among us, not merely to bring some temporary provision of comfort for a hurting people, but to secure an eternal comfort by slaying our greatest enemies, sin and death. That's the comfort we need. The sin that separates you from God, the sin that produces all of your spiritual discomfort and, 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 and because of the sin brokenness of our world also produces all of your worldly discomfort. Jesus came for the express purpose of both paying the debt for that sin and finally and fully removing that sin. He came to reconcile you to himself and to be your perfect and eternal consolation. Unless you're tempted to think that that's just good news for somebody else. Notice that Simeon also raises the bar when it comes to who the beneficiaries of this comfort are. It's being prepared in the presence of all peoples. It's a light of revelation to the Gentiles, even as it is a glory for Israel. A really really hope that you've noticed a common thread, a common theme running through each of these songs of praise the last three weeks. 
as people get a clear picture of what God is doing, they explode with celebration and they celebrate this and they celebrate that. But there's a common theme that has popped up in each of these three celebrations. Each of these explosions of praise involved uh, someone being led by the Spirit to celebrate that God is drawing men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation into his kingdom. He is throwing open the gate and calling those outside of the camp to find their rest in him through repentance and faith. Over and over again, whether we're talking about Mary or we're talking about Zechariah or now we're talking about Simeon, they want to celebrate that God is throwing the gate open here. What a promise. That the comfort ultimately promised to Israel all those years ago would be a comfort to the nations as well. God doesn't just fulfill his promises. He blows them out of the water. He blows them away. What a gigantic statement of cosmic realities flowing from the lips of a strange man who has to hold your baby. If you're mom or dad in this moment, how do you receive this news? Like, what's your, next, what's your next move? Simeon has scooped him up, Lion King style, and made this grand statement of cosmic promises. How do you respond to that? Well, in verse 33, we're told. And his father and his mother, what's that word? Marveled at what was said about him. Yeah, it seems about right, right? Doesn't your pride grow in this moment? I know mine would. I know mine would. Uh, you're thankful for, for all the things that God is doing. You're trying to make sense of all the new information that's flooding you right now. You think they're trying to remember back to all the things they know about the Old Testament, trying to put the pieces together. Like, like they're swimming in a sea of confusion and, 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 and drawing to conclusions. But more than anything else, man, I think they're just happy. I think they're excited. Think of all the wonderful things that that God is promising their child would do one day. They're beaming right now. You can't yank that smile off of them. Think their expectations have grown in this moment? Think they're starting to get excited about some things? I mean, sure, they, they walked into the temple complex a little bit timid, maybe a little overwhelmed by what's going on. And sure, that moment with Simeon probably started out pretty awkward, but, but however they got here, what started out awkward is starting to look pretty awesome. Things are looking up pretty great, pretty, pretty fast, and so it's turned out to be an incredible day, right? It's a good day. So have you lived in this world long enough to know that there's a butt coming? So obviously coming next. We've seen it play out a couple of times now already in this series, but Simeon isn't done talking. He's got some more that he wants to say. And so even as Mary and Joseph are marveling, Simeon continues in verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be 
revealed. So hear me clearly, because the world is full of people who adore the Christmas story that have never bothered to give it any kind of serious thought about its implications. There, there are a lot of people who love the idea of Christmas who have never reconciled their heads and their hearts to what that actually means for the world. The comfort and the salvation that this child is bringing to every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, it will come by the means of a giant watershed. You are on one side of the divide or you are on the other. No ifs, ands, or buts. The grace of, this, of his upside-down kingdom is a sign that is opposed to the religious and political powers that be. Full stop. He will not allow for alternative pathways to his comfort, and he will not allow for competing claims to his authority. And because he is insistent upon being the way and the truth and the life, many will rise and many, many will fall. And those who reject Jesus' unique claim as Savior and Lord will do everything in their power to snuff out the one doing the claiming. Count on it. It's shortly after this moment that we believe that Mary and Joseph return to their relative's home in Bethlehem. And whether immediately after or sometime within the next several months after, the wise men from the east follow a star to their doorstep. They come bearing gifts, right? We normally lump them into the birth narrative. We throw three oriental-looking kings into our nativity scenes because we think it looks cute. We forget that they stop off at Herod's palace on their way because where else are you going to look for a newborn king? And Herod really hates the idea. He immediately begins looking for a way to murder this one that they claim was born king of the Jews. We forget that after worshiping the Christ child and offering their gifts, both the Magi and Joseph have dreams warning them not to go anywhere near Herod. So the Magi duck off another way, and instead of going home, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus run off to Egypt for a while. They live as refugees in a foreign land waiting upon a murderous king to finally die. They're on the run. And as painful and as sorrowful as that season might have been in their lives, and it certainly was, that season pales in comparison to the sorrow that Mary will experience when she one day watches her eldest be scourged and crucified. Not a fun day for her. A sword will pierce her own soul, right? She may not have known all the details of the what's and the winds and the how's, but how much do you think that young mother dreaded that coming day? How many times do you think it crossed her mind as she did chores around the house or watched her son grow up? Think it bore any weight on her decision making? Think she held her baby boy just a little bit tighter every time that chance crossed her mind? When Jesus set off into his public ministry about 30 years later as he began to distance himself from his earthly family and his relationship with her. Do you, do you think that she was flooded with the realization of, oh, here we go, it's coming? 
when he was arrested, when he was put on one mock trial after the next, when he's beaten and hung on a cross. When he finally hands the responsibility of caring for her over to John, you think Mary didn't wear Simeon's words like a scar in her soul that day? Come on, Woodard, you're laying it on kind of thick. You're really going to bring up that kind of negative stuff during Advent? Where's the bumbling innkeeper? I like him in the play. Where's the child laying peacefully in a manger? He can't cry. The song says he doesn't cry. I thought this was supposed to be a Christmas sermon. I promise you it is a Christmas sermon because despite whatever we may imagine the Christmas story to be and despite however we might wish or expect it all to play out, what we actually celebrate at Christmas is the entrance of the one who came not to bring peace but a sword. His very presence in this world is for the purpose of the rise and fall of many. Simeon promises it. For those that don't belong to him, they will hear that claim and they will revile. They will challenge his authority. They will mock. They will beat and they will kill. Bank on it. It's what the world does when you try to assert proper authority over it. But for those who do belong to him, they will long desperately for the day when his work will be brought to its final conclusion. They will long for him to do in our world what he has already done in our hearts to remove the disease of sin and to be our eternal consolation. What we need this Christmas is not a more diligent effort to protect our long-held expectations. What we need is a deeper sense of what God is actually doing so that it produces in us a modern-day nunc dimittis. We need a desperation for God to finish what he's already begun. We need to be poised and ready so that when he does finally fulfill that promise, we can gladly say, oh Lord, I get to go home now. You have fulfilled your promise to your servant and you've now given me my release. But how, how in the world do you get there? Right? How, how do you get to... Get to the, I mean, it sounds really nice. I think we all kind of want a story like Simeon's. Right? I think we kind of long for that to be our story as well, but how in the world do you get there? I think for the follower of Jesus, we, we repent of sin and we lean into what God has revealed about himself. What's that one thing for you? What's that one thing that if God were to actually do it, you could die a happy man? Maybe, Maybe we get where Simeon was by loving what Simeon loved and longed for more than anything else. A desperate yearning to see God be glorified in fulfilling his promises. Maybe, maybe other things need to die so, and be forgotten in order for that one to rise to the top. 2020 has been been pretty awkward, but what if God has given us a glorious opportunity to kill off the unnecessary so that the better thing could rise? 
In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. It's a time set aside for specifically for you to respond to God's word, to put action to whatever he's stirring in your heart and head. And listen, I'd love to be helpful to you. If you're watching us online, you can use the, the contact form in the, in the video description. Or if you're in the room here, man, I'd love to talk to you. I'd be down front here. <laughs> you don't have to do it during that time, but I'm available. Maybe you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe, maybe God is calling you to, to be obedient to, to Jesus in baptism. Or maybe, maybe he's calling you to, to formally uh, connect, join our, our church family. Or maybe he's calling you to, to, to say yes to some opportunity of missions or, or service that he's laying out in front of you. And so whatever that is for you, uh, we want to give you a chance to, to respond to that. If, you, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can respond to God's word too. And you do that by meeting Jesus. That watershed, I think Jesus is really serious about that. I think he's deadly serious about that. Some will rise and some will fall. He came to reconcile a people to himself. And so I think a really important question is, okay, how does he do that? The Bible teaches that our sin separates us relationally from a holy God. It, it is owed his righteous wrath, but the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and loves us with a great love. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as a perfectly innocent substitute to make payment for your sin. Wrath has been soaked up because he bore the penalty for sin on his flesh. He died on the cross he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now is the king who conquered sin and death. He killed it off. He calls you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Whoever However, you are, whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together to him as a church family right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for another explosion of praise in the Christmas story. God, may we have the same desperate desires as Simeon. And there are other things I long for, but... Would you help guard my heart so that they always take a back seat to that which is eternally good? Guys, we try to figure out what this next week actually plays out like, and whether that's hanging on to some, tradi some traditions or uh, establishing some new things or just longing for the return of some old stuff. However that works itself out, would those things take a clear back seat to who you are and what you've done this week? May we explode with celebration like Mary, like Zechariah, and like Simeon. This is not the Christmas we expected. Maybe it's better because you're doing something bigger than we can even imagine. You're doing something better than we could hope for. You're building your kingdom. You have sent your Savior. We long for his return. And we can die happy men when he comes.
We love you. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know? Would you draw men and women into your kingdom this morning? Would you help us be a good church to, to love them and walk with them as you grow them? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.